That's what I did. I took a lot of money. It was a shell of a building. I put a ton of money into this building. You know, it's not like I went out and bought someone else's thing, which by the way, that is one of the secrets that I can talk about later. Mm. You never want to do what I did. Never go in and build your own Disneyland. Not a good idea in the restaurant business. Mm. Well, I did that. I made it absolutely to my uh, vision and it took about a year and a lot of hoops and alcohol licenses. And I mean, it was a nightmare. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. To join our community, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and receive the following five free benefits. First, you get the risk reduction checklist I've created from the lessons I've learned from all of my guests. Second, you get my weekly email to help you increase your investment return. Third, you get a 25% discount on all ASTOTS Academy courses. Fourth, you get access to our Facebook community to get to know guests and fellow listeners. And finally, you get my curated list of my favorite 10 episodes. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from ASTOTS Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, Barrett LePagian. Barrett, are you ready to rock? Yes, sir. I sure am. <laughs> I am so excited to hear your story. And we've been talking about this for a while. So it's great to get you on the show. And I want to introduce you to the audience. And, you know, it's a great story. And I know a little bit about your story. And so I'm really excited to bring it. But Barrett LePagian started his business career at 14 years old, back when we didn't call it child labor. <laughs> <laughs> he was working in his mom and dad's family business that they started in 1971 called Isco LePagian Photo Lab. Barrett was a black and white dark room printer for photographers from many fields, including rock and roll, celebrity, bodybuilding, architecture, fashion, fine art, and much more. Of course, you were in Los Angeles. He and his brother Vic expanded the business to nine locations and 150 employees at its peak. In 2004, a Western saloon that Barrett frequented with family, clients, and employees became available just across the street from the Burbank headquarters of ISCO. And that's how he got into the restaurant industry. From there, he ended up owning four restaurants from 2004 until now. Today, ladies and gentlemen, he will share with us his story about how he opened one of those four restaurants. It was called Tin Horn Flats Hollywood from scratch in 2013. Barrett, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you know, I was I was very blessed. I was uh, involved with my mom and dad in a really a nurturing family business, you know. So I had never really had a, a normal job. You know, it was, a, it was just a really great environment. And it was something that we grew. I mean, uh, my father started from uh, literally from scratch. And the business over I think we had it for about 30 years, just kept growing and growing and growing, you know? So, and that's what my reality of running a business was, was growth and and doing well. And where did your dad get this ability to run a business? I mean, was it just something that he had? Did he study it? Did he just develop it? That's a great question. He studied in Germany. He lived in Germany, I think for about 12 years. As a 16 year old kid, he went to Germany for college graduated there, and then got himself a job 
on a show, a documentary style show, very similar to 60 Minutes. I think the German translation was Mirror to the World. And he found himself as a cameraman on the show. And, you know, he, had, he went all around the world interviewing people like Idi Amin, <laughs> you know, like really interesting stuff. So my mom wanted to, my mom didn't like living in Germany. That's, mm-hmm. you know, I was born in Germany, uh, Germany myself. So when they immigrated, legally immigrated to the United States, they ended up in Hollywood. And, you know, it was a, it was a very controlled thing in L.A. It was all unionized. So it's not like my my dad was just able to come in and say, hey, look, you know, I've been doing this and I'm great. And it just wasn't that kind of thing. And one of his friends, childhood friends who lived in L.A., just said, hey, look, you know, we got to get you a job here. And you don't you know a thing or two about photography and custom printing? And my dad was, yeah, you know, I do. But I mean, just something I've done in school, in college, I learned. Mm. Said, well, you're about to try and do it professionally. <laughs> That's how he got his first job, custom printing. You know, it was just a, a lab in Hollywood that needed a, a black and white technician. Mm. And then how did he have the guts to set that up as his own business and then really grow it? Well, so one of my uncles was getting married. My mom and dad, I'm Armenian. They were born in Jordan, in Amman, Jordan. Mm. And uh, one of my uncles was getting married. So we all went back from Los Angeles to Jordan for this wedding. And, you know, we're talking about this was probably like the early 70s, I would imagine, or not not even like, yeah, yeah, like 70, 71. So Mm -hmm. he was late coming back like a week. And, you know, it's not like there was cell phones or computers. and, 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 you know, in Jordan, it was very complicated making a phone call. Anyway, so when he got back, he was a week late to get back to his uh, work. They basically said, where were you? And he's like, look, I tried calling 10 times. They fired him. You know, (laughs) they just said, no, you you didn't show up. We got somebody else. Goodbye. And my dad just said, look, you know, I'm a really, really uh, I'm a loyal guy and I have a lot of integrity. But just understand if you fire me, I have a a family. I have two young boys. I'm going to go open up my business. I'll Mm. never call your clientele. But I'm just going to open up. I'm going to put a sign out with my name on it. And I'm going to do what I've been doing here very effectively and profitably for you guys. And that's what he did. That's how he started. It's funny because my family came, my father's side came from Germany in 1839 and then to America. And my great grandfather, basically, he didn't study architecture. He worked at some different firms as a draftsman and all that. But he heard he heard about a. uh, a school board that had commissioned a building in Pittsburgh where he lived and he could just see that it was a ripoff. I mean, it was like massively overpriced. There was corruption involved and he came up with the plans to stick it to him and basically said, I can build this building for half the price in half the time. And amazingly, you know, he got the job and he built it at half the price in half the time. And that began his architectural firm business. So that basically had a family architectural firm business for about a hundred years in our family. But the the point is, is that a lot of times it is the challenge of life that pushes us into the situation that we find ourselves in. And then it's a question of what are you going to do? You're going to bow down and crawl back and beg for your job or something, or are you going to stand up and say, I'm going to take this as an opportunity. And that's great to learn about your father. And I know, I know you've got that in your blood too. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, he taught me well. Yeah. 
And there's nothing wrong with standing up and standing up to a challenge and, and taking it on. So, and the other thing about maybe just tell me about kind of what is your super skill? Like, what is it that you're good at? If we look at your business career, the things are obviously, you know, you know about photography and all that, but what are the things that you would say, you know, made you and your brother, I guess, successful? Me personally, Andrew, I've always been sort of the front man. You know, I enjoy dealing with people. I enjoy uh, contact, you know. I mean, as far as being a salesman goes, I, I couldn't sell a single thing to anybody. But what I can do is if I have an amazing product, which I would never be involved in any business unless it was what I felt was absolutely the best I could do. So I've always been involved in something that I was really proud of. Once I'm in that situation, I can just be a, that ambassador to the product. And I mean, I'm just you know, genuinely, I'm excited about what I'm doing and that transcends to the other people. And, and, you know, I, that's how we get fans. My biggest skill, if I had to say, is I, I'm really good at connecting dots. And I think in business, that's one of the most critical things, you know, I mean, you can be a founder or you could be a manager, but if somehow you try and do too much, if you can't connect dots, if you can't put people together, if you can't develop relationships that work, and that's how you can grow, you know, whether it's multiple uh, locations or, or I mean, however uh, you're, you're mm. growing your business, that is what I think is the most important thing. And, you know, when I first met you, I actually knew your brother first and he and I got to know each other because his, his shop was nearby where I lived. And so I'd talk to him often, but I would describe your brother as a little bit of a head down guy focused on, you know, like. And I would reach out sometimes and say, hey, let's go get a coffee or something and, you know, send him a message and we would go. But when I met you, it wasn't very much long time afterwards that you sent me a message and said, hey, come and meet, meet uh, Vic and me for lunch. You know, at that time, I think it was bullies that we went to right. and, you know, want to talk to you about this or that. And I just thought, you know, that shows, you know, exactly what you're talking about is that willingness and desire, not willingness, it's desire to reach out and connect. And I appreciate that. And I saw that in action, you know, with you. Thank you. Yeah. So anyways, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Okay. So, you know, like I was saying, Andrew, you know, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I came from a place of success. And when I say success, it was ground up. You know, it was my mom and dad that started the business thing. Then they got an employee to help them. As I grew older, I started working there and I loved it. But what I saw as a young man was growth and business and success. So to be honest, in some ways, as wonderful as that was, that was also not a good thing. Because that's all I saw. I thought that that's just how it worked. I thought, you know, if you work hard and you go to work and you love what you do and you go to battle every day, success is automatic. There's no chance that that's not going to happen. Well, you know, as some of us know, that's not necessarily the case because there's a lot of things that are completely beyond our powers sometimes. Mm. So it was 2012. We sold, you know, the photo lab business had started decreasing just with digital, you know, with the uh, digital cameras. And then, of course, the phones and, you know, people just weren't making photos the way they used to. A big part of our business was also Hollywood headshots. I mean, we printed millions of what used to be the black and white glossy eight by ten. And then we, we actually uh, our business was 
responsible for making it the color eight by 10. But anyway, long story short, that was going away and many things were going away. And it became less and less interesting to be in the photo lab business. It became more of a commodity. Instead of people coming in and paying whatever it was for the highest quality, now all of a sudden the conversation changed to, uh, well, how much is it per square foot? And then, you know, I'm not a carpet or wallpaper salesman. I, I, and I just said, you know, I, I'm not going to do that. So I already had the one restaurant and it was doing well. And so we sold one of the buildings in Hollywood that we had, the photo lab. Mm. And there was a, a good profit from it. And instead of taking it and just investing it, of course, that's why we're here right now, as I should have, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to double down. And I really felt like, hey, you know, my one restaurant's doing good. My photo lab reached the highest levels of any photo lab in the country. I'm going to get a second restaurant. Back in that day in the Hollywood area, I was on every realtor's list about, you know, I had uh, a lot of the realtors there, the high-end realtors were my friends. So they would send me what the latest real estate was, whether it was for rent or for sale. I came across this one listing that was wonderful. It really was. It was just, it was prime right across the street from the Grauman Chinese Theater and all the tourist attractions. I mean, I was right there, but yet half a block away, but still on the main street, it was perfect. So I went, I looked at it and I was just like, oh my God, this is it. This is where I want to put my new restaurant. It was a little too big, but I figured, you know, I can fill this, you know, no problem. And the other thing that I felt encouraged was most of the competition, you know, I, I started studying, who am I going to go up against? And it was all large chains. Mm. You know, it was the hard rocks. And it was, we have something um, in the States called Dave and Buster's. And it's basically like, kind of like um, an adult Chuck E. Cheese. Like, it's like an adult playground, video games, that kind of thing. Really loud, but they serve alcohol and they have like, you know, like a comfort food, burgers, fries, that kind of stuff. So, that's what I did. I took a lot of money. It was a shell of a building. I put a ton of money into this building. You know, it's not like I went out and bought someone else's thing, which by the way, that is one of the secrets that I can talk about later. Mm. You never want to do what I did. Never go in and build your own Disneyland. Not a good idea in the restaurant business. Mm. Well, I did that. I made it absolutely to my uh, vision. And it took about a year and a lot of hoops and alcohol licenses. And I mean, it was a nightmare. If I had known what I was getting into just in a construction point of it, I probably wouldn't have done it. But anyway, you know, as you get into something, it's just you get deeper and deeper and you're excited. <laughs> so fast forward to a year, I opened, you know, I opened with my own menu, super wonderful quality, reasonable prices. I didn't have the overhead of a lot of the chains did. And that's how I, I started, you know, and uh, the rest how did it of feel? How did it feel when you opened those doors for the first time after a year of preparing? Very exciting. Yeah. To be honest, very exciting. And the reception was really, really good. You know, it's not like, you know, I opened the doors and like, oh, where is everybody? It mm. wasn't like that, you know, because I was in Hollywood, I was part of the community. I knew a lot of people. So there was a, an anticipation for me opening this place. And it actually started off really well. One of the things which I, I hadn't shared with you either is I had hired this chef. At this point, I had four restaurants, but this one was by far the largest one. 
Okay, the other three were very close to my house. One was a music venue, it was more of a nightclub. And those were all doing pretty good. You know, some were doing great, but everything was covering costs. Well, I, I hired an executive chef just because it was seeming like it was overwhelming, you know, trying to deal with mm. all the different cooks. So this guy, my deal with him was he was going to take care of all four kitchens, overlook them, you know, make a menu adjustments, whatever needed to happen and sort of report back to me. About three or four months in, Andrew, all of a sudden, all my credit cards started declining and I had 25 American Express credit cards for all the businesses. That includes the photo labs, that includes employee cards. In one day, everything stopped, okay? So I'm like, that's impossible. I mean, I've never been late ever in my life. I'll spare you, you know, the long mm. version of it. This guy had gone out, he had a catering business and he had put like $120,000 on the cards in one month and he split, okay? Oh. So here I am, and you know how American Express works. You either pay that bill or you don't and you're cut off. But my whole existence, all the companies, all the restaurants, including my family business was on that card. Mm. So that was the first sort of strike that I yeah. had to deal with. Yeah, you know, I had to get past that. And then, you know, now I'm dealing with my family and my brother and everybody's like, what is going on? And, you know, like, we don't care. Like, you got to fix this right now. Yeah. So that was like, and it was like in the second or third month. So that's, that's how it started. The other thing about it was across the street for me was what was called Hollywood and Highland. Well, I started taking away some of their big parties and Hollywood and Highland is sort of like one big group. You know, mm -hmm. it's the same owners. It's very ancestral. It's the same owners, same partners. You know, it's one property owner that leased huge businesses, whether it was the Hard Rock or Dave and Buster's, all well-known names. But it was all the same sort of click. Well, they didn't like me being there. This little guy that was starting to take significant business from them, mm. parties and so on, because across the street was a Lowe's hotel also. And all of a sudden, they started losing very big parties to me because I could do it at half the price and twice as good. Mm. You know? So believe it or not, there was an actual effort, an organized effort against me, the little guy, where basically they said, you can never recommend Tinhorn Flats anymore. It's just recommend anyone you want, but don't recommend them. And the only way I found that out is because I'd have like, par uh, like not parties, but sort of like buttering up the sales guys at the Lowe's Hotel. They had 10 mm. salespeople that sold the room, sold conventions, it was a convention hall. And one of them pulled me aside, he goes, look, you're really generous, you're kind, but this is what's up. You know, We've been instructed to never deal with Tinhorn Flats. So that was like a strike two, Andrew. Mm. And then, you know, it was just too much, to be yeah. honest with you. If I had to say, what's the one thing, you know, I, I didn't want to have any partners. So I went in like, you know, like uh, the lone cowboy here, yeah. you know, guns blazing, you know, paid everything off myself. And then at some point, you know, you, you sort of hit a wall and say, wow, OK, this is really getting actually kind of scary here. Mm. There's not no there's no real safety net to fall on. And it just started mounting. That started mounting. My accountants couldn't really handle it anymore. You know, I had four restaurants and I had the photo lab still going and it just became a matter of being overextended. It really did. And, you know, my rent was a 26,000 a month dollars. 
And my payroll was astronomical just because it was a huge place just to open the place up. And then lastly, I would say, you know, a very difficult part about that location, as great as it could be or as bad, it was a feast or famine. The Hollywood Bowl was the close. I was the closest restaurant to the Hollywood Bowl. If there was a big show at the Bowl, it doesn't matter if I had 100 staff. There's just no way we could put we could keep up with that. You know, I mean, we did the best we could and people were happy. But then the next night, you'd literally not make enough money. You know, it could be raining or whatever's Mm. going on. You don't even make enough money at that location to cover the staff. Yeah. So these are sort of the the obstacles that I came across. Mm. And when when was it that you kind of realized that this is not going to work? It was about four years into it. Mm. You know, I think uh, I built it in uh, 2012. I opened it in 2013. And I'm looking at my notes. It was it was I think it was August or September of August of 2017. Right. And there came a point where, you know, my girlfriend at the time was working with me. She was the she was my chef, you know, doing a great job. But she came to me. She said, look, you know, I mean, it's not like we're not doing things right. We still have the best food. We still, have, you know, it, we're busy. But it's just we it's one step forward, three steps back for real. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you and, and I had been putting a lot of personal money, you know, oh, no, no. You know, let's just get over this hump. OK, here's 50 grand. I liquidated uh, my 401k. penalties, the whole thing. My biggest problem, Andrew, is this is a horrible thing, is I go down with the ship, okay? (laughs) Sometimes you got to pull that lever and parachute out. You know, whether it's the ship or the airplane, I'm like, we're going, no, we're going to make this work. And, you know, that stubbornness. I mean, if somebody's listening to me, the one thing, if they could take away, look, I'm really proud. I have great parents, wonderful business, but you can't let one thing fully consume you. And that's what I allowed to happen with Tin Horn Flats Hollywood. If I could just say, um, I found somebody to take it over. Mm. Literally, I handed them this million dollar business, right? Just gave it to them. We had a deal. If it worked out, he was going to give me a couple hundred thousand on the back end. Yep. Of course, it never even came to that. Within two months, this guy destroyed the restaurant. Okay. He was from Chicago, so he was flying back and forth. He didn't pay his staff. Okay. And the health department actually came and closed it down to like cockroach infestation. Just there was nobody watching it. Under my clock, I'm a huge health guy. You know, mm. cleanliness, above all else in the restaurant business, it's all about cleanliness. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter how great your product is or your quality. If it's not clean, you're not opening. That's just my, within two months, this guy was closed down. And then after that, you know, he never reopened. And I think two months after that, the place exploded. So there, I guess there was some kind of a, I mean, he got evicted anyway. Right. And then while the eviction was going on, Tin Horn Flats Hollywood went out literally with a big bang, you know, it was on the news and everything, major gas explosion. Luckily, no one was walking past because it was glass out all over the street. And I mean, it was a nightmare. Of course, you know, I got the blame for a lot of this because people didn't know, you know, they just knew Tin Horn Flats. They knew Barrett LePage and he owns it. Oh, for sure. It's this is an insurance scam. You know, that I had to hear that for a long time. The health violation. Oh, that was embarrassing to me, even though I had nothing to do with it. I hadn't stepped into the restaurant in yeah. months and months, but it reflected me. 
you know, mm-hmm. and, and anyway, so yeah. just a, a really bad experience. And how would you summarize the lessons you learned from that? To be exact for the restaurant business, you know, if somebody's watching this, and they're considering a restaurant, you know, I, I'm not a partner guy. I really like doing things my way. Okay. Now I don't want to subject someone else to how stubborn I am. And, you know, my dad and my parents were amazing, but they taught me a certain way. I'm a perfectionist and I like, I don't cut corners. And, and in the restaurant business, unfortunately, you kind of have to cut corners, but I can't. So mm. the one thing I learned is don't go into the restaurant business alone. Really. Mm. Ideally, my biggest advice would be one person like me, the front man that believes in a product that likes shaking hands with the customers and, I love talking to people and you need that guy. But then you really, really need two people in the back, an accountant and a lawyer. You know, they could be smaller partners in the back, silent partners, but you don't want to hire those two. You want Mm. a vested interest in that. And then, you know, a chef or a cook doesn't have to be a chef. doesn't have to be a high-end Cordon Bleu or Michelin star. Really, that's not necessary, but someone that understands a commercial kitchen. Those four people together, there could be some agreement, you know, good contracts, good understanding for each person's position. I think that's the way to do it. That way, one person isn't trying to wear all those hats and trying to uh, organize all of these uh, challenges. Mm. Maybe I'll share a couple of things that I take away. I mean, one of the things when I look at restaurant, I mean, I'm a financial analyst, so I analyze things and try to think about it. One of the things that people come to me and they say, I want to set up a restaurant. And I, I just say to them, okay, how many tables do you think you're going to have? And they say, let's just say 10. Okay. And what do you think people will pay on average per table for a meal? And let's say, you know, a hundred bucks, whatever that is. Okay. Right. So now let's imagine that you're full capacity. You got 10 tables, you get a hundred bucks. So now you got a thousand bucks. How many times do you think you're going to turn those tables throughout a day? Well, let's say best case three, three times. Right. Okay. So now you got $3,000. All right. And so now that's your maximum capacity. Right. And once you look at a restaurant that way, you realize it's a really constrained business. And they say, but no, no, I'm going to make it really great. And then I'm going to have other restaurants. And I say, well, wait a minute. Okay. That's a different business. Right. It's one thing to be in a business and passionate about it and driving that restaurant to be amazing. But the minute you set up a second restaurant, you need whole different skills, which is how do you run two? Because you can't be in two places at the same time. And so for a lot of people, they see a lot of excitement about going into the restaurant business. And what I see is just a trap because the best case that you're going to be able to do is make one restaurant really successful, but chances are that's already hard, but the revenue possibility is very limited. And if you dare to make a second one, you really need to set up 10 more, not one more, because right. you're going to have all kinds of infrastructure to manage that. And therefore it's just, it sets a tough business. And then, you know, that there's also other things like health department and all kinds of other different government regulations that you can comply with. Is What do you think about my analysis of the restaurant business? I think you're spot on, you mm. know, especially the part about the second one. Because once you get out of, if you have a successful first one, as I did, the second one can actually throw your first one off because now your attention is, you know, all over the place, you're dealing with, you're going to need two managers now, 
If they are not cooperating together, it becomes a complex puzzle once you get the second. And you're right. When you have the second, you might as well have a third and a fourth because mm. the dynamics of the second makes everything much more complicated. Yeah. So based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, I want you to think about a young man or woman out there, not necessarily your kids, but could be, but yes. they're looking at the idea of, oh, I'm going to do a restaurant. And what one action would you recommend that our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? I would say the most important thing is, I mean, if, if that's what really interests you is a restaurant business and there's plenty of uh, horror stories and there's TV shows about restaurants, but if someone, that's what they want, I would say, don't put everything you have into it. Treat mm. it like any other investment. You know, usually when someone buys a stock or really yeah. any kind of investment, you don't take everything you have and put it in that one stock. You diversify. And mm. I didn't really do that. I was so confident that this was going to do well because, you know, my track record was I was banning a thousand, you know, literally I was banning a thousand. So don't do that. Treat yeah. it as one more investment and go in there with key people in place. Mm -hmm. See, I didn't really do that. I had this guy, the chef, and then uh, I had a few other people. I had a manager and so on. But at the end of the day, to be honest, it ruined five years of my life. Yeah. It really did. You know, it was very stressful, very, very uh, loss of sleep. Mm -hmm. I mean, and really, you know, what I found in the restaurant business, what I'm not interested in, Andrew, is uh, peaks and valleys. Man. I don't want, you know, in one day, my biggest pull in the restaurant business was $50,000. Mm. Okay, over. It was like $52,000. Okay. I'll never forget. The very next day, four restaurants did less than like seven. Okay. So, I mean, you get like 52, 53,000, and then you get seven for four places. I don't need that. In my yeah. life. I'd rather make less money, but secure, you know, get get some kind of a small percentage on my money, but be able to sleep at night and not be stressed. That, that's what I'm for now. Mm. One last thing I wanted to mention is that some of the listeners out here that are listening know you for another reason. They've been following a challenge that you've been facing with another restaurant. Yeah. Maybe you can just tell us what that is about and kind of where that's at. Okay. Well, so the original Tinhorn Flats, which is the one I bought in 2004, still exists. The other three restaurants I, op I opened, I either sold them. You know, this, this one ended the way we're mm. talking about. But there was two other ones that actually uh, did okay. You know, um, mm. they were successful, but I sold them for whatever reason. My original restaurant is Tinhorn Flats in Burbank. And, you know, it, owning a restaurant is difficult enough, but during COVID times, whole other thing. Yeah. Long story short, when the LA County Health Department kept changing its mind of when you can open, when you can close, there was a thing where, okay, you got to close all indoor dining, but you can be open outdoor. Okay. Now you got to close all outdoor dining, but you can only do to go. My, my two children, I have a son that's 20 and a daughter that's 25. They were the ones that were dealing with it. And I, and I live in Thailand right now. Mm. And, you know, I, on the phone, I would sort of direct them. Okay, do this, close down due to COVID temperatures. And, and then all of a sudden, one day, they said, okay, you can't be open inside, but you can be outside and to go. Fine. Next day, they're like, shut to outside. Like, what? We just spent all this money and, you know, and plastic and this and thermometers. Like, why? What? 
Show me a small bit of evidence, Andrew, that shows how COVID is getting people sick outside eating. Mm. So you know what I decided? I called up my son. I said, you know what, kid? Open. He's like, dad, there's 30,000 restaurants closed. You know, excuse my language. I don't give a shit. We're opening, you know? And I did. You know, I did. It was like, Mm. I think it was December of last year. You know, now I kept all the protocol in place as far as masking, as far as not opening the inside. So it's not like I went totally rogue on this thing, Mm. you know? I said, no, you know, I'm going to, I'll, we'll distance outside. I have a huge outdoor patio. But, you know, I'm not going to lose something I've had for years and years, you know? Mm. And so we stayed open. And, oh, it became a thing. The health department would come in every day inside us. You know, there was something like 60 sightings and it was $50,000 in fines. And then, uh, you know, they took away our health license. Only for that, huh? There's no issues as far as real health issues, as far as cleanliness. Like I said, I mean, I run a clean Mm. uh, kitchen. And then um, the Burbank City Council got involved and they took away our conditional use permit because I didn't have a health license. Okay. Didn't matter. Kept open. And, you know, the popularity of the restaurants growing because I'm the one guy saying not going to put up with this nonsense. And there were customers coming at that time and coming and sitting. More than ever, Andrew. Yeah. More than ever. People were coming in, not for the food anymore. It was Tinwood Flats became a political statement to Mm -hmm. be there and eat a burger became an American thing. And really, you know, it's just like, you know, what's government is trying to shut down your business. And by the way, on the Burbank City Council, there's a guy named Constantine Anthony. He's a self-proclaimed socialist. Okay, he got his position and he puts on social media how he's Mm anti-capitalism. So this is the kind of thing I'm dealing with. I'm literally dealing with a city council that wants to destroy small business openly. It's not mm. like conspiracy stuff here. The guy talks about, you know? Mm. So we just kept going. Finally, the city decided they were going to board us up. The entrances. Fine. They boarded us up. I told my son, go get a saw. Saw right through. We opened it. At the very end, they put literally into the ground in cement, a chain link fence around the full perimeter of the whole restaurant. And then it became, you know, protests. And I mean, you know, I've, I've been on Fox News uh, mm. a couple of times. I've done many interviews about it. You know, again, it's, it just gets back to going down with the ship. In business, I will still say, don't go down with the ship. Mm. In a situation like this, where I really believe this isn't about a business anymore, this has to do with American freedoms. I will go down with the ship. See, yeah. I mean, you know, I just... So now it's uh, it's in the court system. You and know, what, just, how would you describe kind of the principle of what you're standing for? Government overreach. Mm. Completely. It's just government overreach. I mean, you know, these aren't laws, Andrew, what was passed. OK, they're mandates, mandates, mandates. Like why? You know, if someone I'm a reasonable man, I really am. You know, I'm a reasonable businessman. I'm an entrepreneur. Mm. I understand, you know, there's, you know, there's times where for the greater good, if we got to close, we got to close. When this COVID thing first started, you know, no one knew what was going on. You know, we, we had no idea what the percentage of sick, death. 
I did everything. You know, I was scared for my children. Mm. My mm. children are working there. My customers are my friends. You know, I've owned the restaurant yeah. for 17, 18 years. I wasn't out to hurt anybody or make anybody sick. So I went along with the plan. For me, once I started realizing that it's pretty much a scam, what they mm. were doing, and there was no real logic. If right. you look, and even just a year out, sometimes it takes five or 10 years to look back and see like, hey, yeah, that was a joke. No, in a year, you can see what a joke it really was. You know, they were out to destroy small businesses and mm -hmm. they did a great job doing it. You know? <laughs> so that's it. I, I'm not, I'm not going to let Burbank Chamber of uh, City Council destroy me. I'm just not going to do it. Some punk, you know, making rules and laws. Mm. No. Yep. So that's where I'm at. You know, it's just I've got a really high end attorney named Mark Garagos. Mm -hmm. You know, he's, he's like a celebrity attorney. He's done everybody from Michael Jordan to Michael Jackson. You know, I had to get him. He's the best yeah. of the best. And so it's really in his hands at this point. And how do you respond to all the other restaurants, let's say in Burbank or around that go, oh, we had to shut down, you know, like they're in some ways cowering and they're following the government's mandates. How do you respond to them? That's kind of a complicated thing, Andrew, and I'll tell you mm. why. Because number one, there's two points of view to this. Number one, <clears throat> I'm a stubborn guy. Okay, I, I'm the nicest guy one-on-one. -on -one. Mm. You know, you're my friend, yeah. you know. Yeah. But on the other hand, if you push me, I can be a not a nice guy. I don't take well to bullies. I'll step in and be a really mean guy to a bully. Mm. I'm not going to let someone that can get harassed be allowed to be harassed. That being said, the problem with the people, you know, that they're facing is number one, you know, they don't want to deal with it. But number two, they have a lot to lose. Yeah. Okay. If they have a lot of, if they have a lot of money and a lot of resources, the government can come after all of it. You're not going to be able to do anything in any business unless you pay those fines. Me, to be honest, I don't live in that in the U.S. anymore. You know, I made a decision to come and, and try a new life, you know, just before COVID. It's mm. amazing. Yep. And I mean, I love living in Thailand. I love the freedoms that Thailand gives us. Mm. I look back at our amazing country, you and me as Americans, mm. and it's just sad. The least free country with the 4th of July coming up is our country at this point. You've got these loser governors telling people what to do. I mean, you've got these mayors that, you know, they literally don't know their ass from their elbow and they're pushing these far left agendas. So I don't know, you know, the people that sort of had to go along with it, they lost everything anyway, Andrew. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, thousands and thousands of restaurants, they're never coming back. Exactly. And I mean, the losses they took. So everyone's got to sort of just measure with me. You know, I didn't have as much to lose. I mean, I'm losing my restaurant. It's yep. gone. You know, I have lost the restaurant. Mm. So it's just a matter of how much I'm going to sue them for. That's really what it's down to. But Tinhorn Flats, the probability of it ever reopening in that same location, is probably really low. I'm so stubborn. I'll still not concede it because mm. there is a chance, yep. but not looking so good. But, you know, it's going to be a monetary fix at this point. So what I hear from you say about that other restaurants and other people is that it's just it's too much of a risk for people to stand up sometimes against things. And it takes a strong person like yourself 
to do that. And one of the things that I remember about talking to my father about some things that have happened in, in the U.S., and he said, you know, somebody, you know, it can't be that that happened, whether, you know, I don't know, Kennedy killed by CIA or whatever that thing was. It can't be because somebody would have said something. And I always felt like that was one of the hardest arguments to fight against my dad to get him to look at something. And then I watched the, the documentary of Daniel Ellsberg, the most dangerous man in, in America, which is what he was called by Richard Nixon. And Ellsberg basically revealed the Pentagon Papers, which were internal documents within the Pentagon where they accumulated all of the errors, the lies, and everything about the Vietnam War all into one document. He said 1,000 men and women knew what was in those documents and not one of them spoke. And it was just, it hit me between the eyes that, you know, many people could be sitting by, standing by and saying, I'm not going to risk my job and my family and I'm going to go along. And so, you know, I think that I appreciate people like yourself who say whatever it is, you know, it doesn't matter what it is that you believe in, but that you stand up for what you believe in and it's going to be hard and it's going to be a fight, but without people like that standing up and what you saw and what you've described is that people out there come to the support of someone who stands up for something that's right. Andrew, just look at the doctors, the doctors that are trying to put out information about COVID. I mean, who would have thought that in the United States of America, doctors would be getting censored, you know, deleted? I mean, whether it's an opinion or not opinion, I mean, let's face it, there is no facts in the medical profession. Every human organism is a little different. Mm -hmm. Every disease is a little different. You know, no two people react to any medication the same way. So how is it that thousands and thousands of physicians are silenced? You know, this is what I was tell, telling my brother. If this doesn't alarm people, that's our biggest problem. Yeah. Because the government, I never trusted big government. You know, uh, you mm. know, just uh, let me simply say, I hate big government. Mm. Okay? The big government is really, the government is supposed to be there to protect us. You know, not to get in our way, not to tell us when we can open, when we can't open. At this point, I mean, you know, just look at these uh, vaccination passports they want to do. They basically want to control every single element of our life. And I'm sorry, this isn't going to end well. I say it, you know, I, you know, a lot of people don't like it when I say this, but I post it on, on the social media a lot. This is not going to end well for the far left. Mm. It's not. And it just depends on how far they're going to push good Americans. But at some point, and it could be something much more insignificant than what they think, something's going to go wrong for them. Yeah. And I really hope and pray that we don't get to that point, but people aren't going to put up with this crap a whole lot longer. Mm. You know, after 30 years of being outside of the U.S. and looking back at the U.S., you just see that so many different things happen that people want regulation. They want protection from government, whether that's 9-11 and then they want to be safe or whatever it is. It's just there's a fire in a particular thing. Well, everybody's got to follow a new protocol and there's this or there's that. The only direction that it can go is just more and more government regulation. It's very hard to stop. You know, what I remember hearing the quote from someone that says, there's nothing more permanent than a temporary government program. And, you know, the point is, is that, and then you bring it out into a bigger, wider world where I live, 
you know, out here outside of America and you realize there is a massive war machine that is being financed by taxpayers in the U.S. that is bringing destruction around the world, either, you know, outright destruction or behind the scenes destruction. And I really come to the conclusion that the only way it's a little bit like cancer, as an example, the only way you can stop cancer is stop feeding it. And that someday, if I was back in the U.S., what I would do is I would try to get a coalition of people, taxpayers, to say the military budget, let's just take as an example, is maybe 20% of the total budget. And I would say that as a taxpayer, as millions of people need to get together and say, we owe, I owe, each person individually owes, let's say, 100 in taxes that year, and we're going to hold back 20 of that 100. As a group of a million people that have bonded together to say, we reject big government and we reject big government's war in the world and we're not going to fund it. And that's the only way that I think you can now slow down the constant expansion. And over the last two years, the amount with COVID crisis, the amount of expansion of government has gone beyond anybody's wildest dream. So if I was back in the U.S., I would start that petition. And for those listeners, I'd be knocking on your door to say, let's stand up and say, we're not going to give more money to the government to do these things. So, Andrew, my dad used to say something interesting, you know, like I'd ask him sometimes like, wait, why did we just do this? Or why did we just do that? And he used to say, son, when you build it, you got to use it. That's it. Because there is no, you know, if the country spends the money on these weapons, mm. do not think, you know, they're just going to be sold or they can be disposed of. You build it, you use it. That's just how it is. And really, the bottom line is, I mean, to a certain degree, you know, strength is a wonderful thing. It mm. is, you know, being strong. I think, you know, the best defense is an offense, you know. Mm. But like you're saying, there's a lot of waste. Yeah. Mm. that we go through. And it's just that we're in a very unfortunate situation in, our, in uh, the United States right now. So last question, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? You know, that's hard to say, Andrew, with uh, this COVID nonsense, you know, because, you know, really doesn't matter what kind of an entrepreneur you are. And no matter who you are, there's not much you can do right now, mm. you know, because we're so reliant on these governments telling us, what is open, what isn't open. Like, you know, right now in Thailand, everything's shut down, yeah. you know, and it's day to day. And, you know, things, things change here, as you know, by the minute. So, you know, I just sort of, I'm just watching it and waiting it out right now and not doing anything crazy. If I, if I come across a wonderful opportunity, of course I would do it. I, I love the restaurant biz, you know, I would, that's what I would like to be involved with. Yep. But uh, I, I'm just waiting and seeing right now. Yep. Yep. All right, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. My number one goal for the next 12 months is to help you, my listener, reduce risk and increase return in your life. To achieve this, I've created our community at myworstinvestmentever.com, and I look forward to seeing you there. As we conclude, Barrett, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, I, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you, Andrew. I just want to say I thank you and it's been great getting to know you and I appreciate anybody and especially you who stands up for what they believe in, even though the consequences may not be pleasant. And that's 
a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.